0: Do you know what the deadliest artifact in the history of human civilization is? I'll give you a hint. It's about this long, and it's skinnier than your finger. It's a cigarette. Deadliest artifact in the history of human civilization. And you might be thinking, Ben, I bet you read that on the internet. Did you read that on the internet, Ben? You know you can't trust everything on the internet. And I did. I did read it on the internet. But, I also did some fact checking. After I ran across that claim, I checked multiple other sources, and I got the same answer. And a guy who's a history professor, his name's Robert Proctor at Stanford University, wrote an article that tells part of the story of how cigarettes became so popular, and therefore so destructive. He started by noting that in the early 1900s, lung cancer was extremely rare so rare that when medical professors saw it, like saw a case study of lung cancer, they pointed out to their students, this is lung cancer, you might not ever see this again in your lifetime. It was that rare. But then, due to technological advances, cigarettes became cheaper. They were so expensive because they had to be hand-rolled until they built machines that mass-produced them. and. Then mach- when machines were cranking them out by the by the millions, the prices went down, right? Supply and demand and quantity. Sales took off and so did the cases of lung cancer. So by the 1930s and 40s, uh, the scientific community and even the general public who was paying attention, they became increasingly aware of this correlation. More cigarettes being smoked, more smokers, more cases of lung cancer. And it was the... F- it was in the 1950s that scientific studies had shown from multiple different angles, multiple different studies, four studies in in Robert Proctor's essay, four studies showed that it wasn't just correlation, it was causation. That smoking cigarettes was the leading cause of this increase in lung cancer patients. But that announcement, that scientific discovery that announcement was muffled by another voice in the public arena, the voice of the tobacco industry. Firms like Philip Morris and Imperial that produced cigarettes, they knew just as well as the scientists that their product was unhealthy and harmful to the general public. Uh, These internal documents have since been, I guess, leaked or discovered. Uh, Documents that show these firms had knowledge but they had a higher priority. Their, their agenda was to maximize profits. And so they chose that agenda despite the growing evidence that their product was destroying the health of the people consuming it. And they protected their profits by pouring money into scientific studies that basically challenged the notion, challenged the findings that it was, it was causing lung cancer. So, so they attacked it on that front, kind of a pseudoscience, kind of a fake... Uh, Scientific council to attack the the real science, and then they also spent countless dollars in mass marketing, you know, to basically put out propaganda to persuade people. Hey, what you're hearing or what you've heard might not be true. You might not want to believe that, and and it really worked. I mean, their 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 tactics it slowed down the warning from spreading, or it slowed down the spreading of that warning. So in 1960 a poll organized by the American Cancer Society showed that only one out of 3 doctors doctors in the US only one out of 3 considered smoking cigarette smoking a major cause of lung cancer. That same poll showed that almost half of doctors smoked. So there's a little bit of a confirmation bias because smokers, including many physicians who enjoyed cigarettes, they could or would not want to believe the facts that this addictive habit was detrimental to their health and to their patient's health. And so it took, tw- it took 25 years before cigarette consumption peaked. Like, cigarette consumption rose for 25 years after the findings were basically finalized. And I am not bringing this up. This is not a sermon against smoking. If, if you're a smoker or if you have loved ones who smoke, don't feel picked on. That's not my intention at all. I find this story fascinating though. I mean, it's it's just incredible. And so if if you're a smoker and, and you're hearing all this and you're feeling some guilt, I just want you to know Jesus loves you. He wants you here. We love you. We want you here. This, this sermon is not about anti-cigarettes or anti-smoking. The reason I picked this story is to show us the value of a good warning. Just think, if the warning had been heard and heeded and then the consumption stopped, the the consumption peaked that same year, not stopped totally, but it started declining, that same year that the scientific evidence showed it was a major cause, it was the major cause of lung cancer, just think how many lives would have been saved. Just think how many families would have been changed if the warning had been heeded. And sometimes we have to sort through competing claims in our lives, right? Like it's not always so straightforward, like, hey, I got this warning. Uh, There's no other voices competing with that warning, right? Like sometimes there's propaganda, there's other warnings that we we have to filter through. Okay, which one is really true? But that's a small price to pay for the value of a good warning. That's a small price to pay for the value of living according to what's really true. Good warnings not only tell us what's true, they also imply what might or what will happen if we choose to ignore the truth, if we choose to ignore the warning. And so with all that said, uh, I picked this st- that story to start with because what's happening in our passage today is Paul's issuing a final warning to the church at Corinth. And so we're going to read this passage together. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll lead us in reading it. Um, You don't have to read it out loud. But uh, chapter 13, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4, is where we find Paul's final warning. We've been in 2 Corinthians since the start of this year, and we really only have two more Sundays in it. So this is our second to last passage. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I've previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So in this passage, we're going to see four warnings that Paul is giving, and it just happens to coincide with each of the verse markings. So four warnings. And the first warning is that time is running out. Look at the first verse again. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That uh, that second sentence, the fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses, this has its roots in the Old Testament. When God instructed Moses to tell God's people, the Israelites, that When you're trying someone in court, you have to have more than one witness, right? You can't find someone guilty or innocent based on just one person's view, one person's witness. You have to have multiple witnesses. And it's just like I did the same thing when I learned the cigarette is the deadliest artifact in human history. Well, is that really true? Let me go check some other sources. We still do that today. And science does that. Just one study is not enough to prove something. You have to come at it multiple different ways to prove it. And here, Paul is applying that principle that it takes more than just one time to reach a verdict, to to establish a fact. And Paul is applying it to the church that has sinned and has not repented. Because Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. So each visit, Paul is treating as a witness. Okay, I come and I give them instructions on how to change. Are they going to change? Time one, no. Time two, no. Paul says, I'm about to come a third time. And by that time, who you are will have been made clear by your own choices, your own actions. And so he's saying, before I get there, here's your last chance, your final warning. Change, repent. Paul's not expecting them to be perfect. He's not expecting perfection. He's expecting them heading in the right direction because they hadn't been. And so there's pretty clear application for us too today. Time was running out for the Corinthians. Time is running out for us in our context as well. Nobody knows how many more breaths we have, how many more days, minutes, or hours we have to live of this life. Nobody knows when Christ is going to return and judge the world. But we all do know this, that we're forming habits all of the time with all of our choices. And so if we don't know when time is running out, but we do know that we're forming habits, then we should be forming habits that we're we're ready to stand by when time runs out. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So what matters most in the end is what matters most right now. So we can live right now like we would want our lives to be reflected in the end. So that's the first warning that we see Paul giving is that time is running out. It's expiring. And when time expires... Paul says in verse 2, there's going to be a judgment. So that's the second warning. When, when time expires, there will be judgment. Verse 2, he says, I've previously said during the second time, and now I say again, even though I'm not there, and I'm saying this to all who have sinned in the past and to everybody else, that I'm not going to spare anyone. That's judgment language. <laughs> I will not spare anyone. And John Gill, uh, a really smart guy who lived in the 1700s, a theologian, he noticed that Paul, at the beginning of this letter, in chapter one, verse 23, Paul said that it was in order to spare these people that Paul loved, in order to spare the church, that he didn't come again to Corinth. Because Paul knew the third time, the matter was gonna be established. So Paul was, he was doing everything he could, giving them as much rope as much leeway as possible to change so that he didn't have to bring God's judgment on them. And I want you to notice, like when I read this first, I heard Paul will judge those who sin, but he also says, and everyone else as well. In verse two, I will not spare anyone, those who have sinned in the past and to the rest of you all, and I just, want, I just want to point out what that means for us is you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4, God came to Cain and said, where's your brother Abel? And of course, God knew the question was more for Cain. And Cain said, I'm not my brother's keeper. Actually, we are. Of course, you're not responsible for all of your friend's choices or anything like that. But the role of the community in the life of the individual is the community takes responsibility for that individual and the individual has to take responsibility for his place in the community. We need each other. So you can't just sit by and watch someone make harmful choices repeatedly, do nothing and say that you love them. And vice versa, just because I see my friend, oh, he's doing well, he doesn't need my encouragement. No, he still does. We all need each other to stay on track. And Paul, in, in giving the Corinthians as much leeway as he could, in good conscience, right? That's a theme of this whole book, is Paul did everything in good conscience. He, he came in order to not spare them, but he knew, I can't, I can't just let you be. I can't just let you go and still say that I love you. Now is the time that I have to come. And I'm giving you, again, every opportunity to change. So he's, he's trying to help them stay on track while at the same time not being not playing the role of junior Holy Spirit. He's not trying to beat them up with guilt. And so the application for us, again, is that we all have a judge, Christ, who we will give an accounting to, both of the good and the bad things that we've done in this life, and we need to be ready for that. The only way to be ready is to trust Christ with your life, to follow him alone, to trust that he'll make you right with God. And just like Paul gave the Corinthians every opportunity, Christ is, whether you feel it or not, Christ is giving you every opportunity to choose him and to faithfully follow him it's not for his lack of availability but for our own lack of receptivity and then part of trusting christ is dealing graciously with others as we encourage them towards deepening their walk with christ or or coming to know christ and so that second warning Just to refresh, to step back. The second warning is judgment is coming. But the good news is that Christ is in you now. If you're a believer, the third warning is that Christ is in you now and that's also the good news. And you might think, Ben, how is that a warning? It doesn't sound like a warning that Christ is in me. How can it be good news and a warning at the same time? Well, let's go back to verse 3. And we'll start with the end of verse 2. Paul says, I will not spare anyone. That's the end of verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Paul says, I won't spare anyone because you should know better. Because you have Christ in you. And since you're looking for proof of Christ in me, and since you're living in unrepentant sin, living in sin that you're not willing to turn away from, that you're not willing to ask forgiveness for, that you're not willing to leave, Paul says, you'll have to face judgment for that. And, and Paul assumes that Christ is in them, that they're a believer, that, that ultimately in the final judgment, they'll be acquitted, they'll be found innocent, because Christ is in them, but Paul is saying you can't have Christ in you and and just continue on in your sin. It's for freedom that we've been set free So why are you why are you uh, you know keeping those chains of, 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 of slavery's sin or, or sin slavery? why are you keeping those chains on you when you got the key to just unlock it and leave it? Of course, that's a process, and no one ever does it perfectly, but that's the direction that we need to head in. And so, the only thing here, here's the summary of how Christ mighty in you that's, that it's a warning. Here's how, here's how it's a warning the only thing holding them back from growing was themselves, it wasn't God. It wasn't the devil, for as powerful as the devil is, more, more power than we have, but but since they had Christ, the only thing holding them back from growing was themselves. And application for us is the same. The only thing, if you're a believer, the only thing holding you back from growing is you. God is all for your growth. You're becoming like Jesus, you're developing of character, you're accomplishing his mission on earth. He's all for your growth. Christ died and rose from the dead so that you might die to self and live for him. God is all for that happening in increasing measure. Christ is mighty in you. And so we have no excuses. The only thing holding us back from growing is you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I think the only thing holding you back from knowing is you. The only thing back holding you back from knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. I have a friend, for example, I have a friend who asked God to meet with him for two years before my friend experienced God saving him, before he experienced God in such a way that he surrendered his life to Jesus. And that's impressive because it's hard to stay at something for a long time without getting results because we're impatient, we're self-centered. But God promises, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. My friend sought him with as much of his heart as he could (laughs) for two years. And then it happened. God opened his eyes to see how beautiful and how lovely and how good Jesus is. And my friend wanted to follow him. But while you're seeking proof, the only thing holding you back from growing and from knowing is you. And God will not always reply immediately, but he always replies. He's near, he's available. But that power, the power of Christ mighty in you is accessible through weakness. That's how God chooses to display his power. His power is most accessible and most often displayed through weakness. And I think that's why so often, I know me personally, why I decide not to grow, is because I don't wanna be weak. At least I don't wanna be weak enough to pay the price to grow. But that's the fourth warning is the weak ones, the weak ones and Jesus, they're the powerful ones. So Paul is saying, in a sense, watch out for the weak ones. Verse four, Paul writes, Indeed, Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. So remember, if, if you haven't been here before, I guess you can't remember this, uh, but the church at Corinth, they were really valuing and start, uh, at least large, a large section of them was starting to value the appearance of being impressive, of the appearance of power. And there were these false teachers that modeled that, that were coming in and leading them astray. But Paul in contrast he pointed throughout this book he points to his own weakness he's saying if i have to boast if i if i have to lay my claim to something i'll claim i'll lay my claim to my weakness and that god has chosen to display his power through my weakness that i'm bringing nothing to the table but that christ but but christ he's he's all that i'm proclaiming And so this church needed to know that God doesn't make his power known through the strong or the appearance of the strong ones, but through weak ones. And Paul gives Christ as an example in verse 4 by saying, look at the all-powerful son of God. He became a man and died on the cross in weakness. And only after that was the power of God displayed by raising him back to life. And then Paul says that gospel, that Christ died and he was raised, that should be your story. That can be your story too. That we have died with Christ so that now we live with Christ in God's power. And that power of God is meant to be directed towards others. Paul says it's directed towards you, the church. So let's think about application. How is this, you know, God's power in our weakness, how's this fleshed out in our lives? I I came across a good example in David Brainerd's journal entry. David Brainerd uh, died when he was my age, 29 years old on the mission field. And this was one of his prayers, one of his journal entries. He said, oh God, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. Let me make a difference that when people see it and then they, they know me, they'd say, how does that work? There's no correlation there. There's no connection there. It's, it's utterly disproportionate. Brainerd got it. He understood that the last are first, the weakest are strongest in the kingdom of Jesus. And that's what I mean by the weak one in Jesus is the powerful one. So Paul's kind of giving them this, the message of the book, that God's power is displayed in weakness. He's giving it to them one more time in the form of a final warning watch out for the weak ones if you choose to you know hang your hat on on being strong and being impressive and having your life together watch out <laughs> cuz i'm coming and i'm a weak one and i will not spare anyone and of course all of this should point us back to christ the all-powerful God who chose to become weak as a man and to die. And he did that so that God's power could be shown through his resurrected life. He's still alive. And because of his resurrection, Christ being in you is an incredibly mighty truth, making available to you all that you need. Just like we sang, Christ is enough. All that you need for life and godliness is available to you in Him. And all of us will face judgment. But if we have all that we need in Him, we don't face it with fear or shame. If you make Him Lord, we know that He's not get, just going to be our judge, He's also going to be our lawyer. And when the judge is also your lawyer, you're going to win. You're going to win the case. He's, it's, he's made us His case. We're one in Jesus, which is an incredible truth. But time is running out, and that warning is meant to keep us ready, to keep us on our toes. Even though we're ready for the judgment, we should be living every minute in gratitude for the fact that he's our judge and he's our lawyer. Basically, he's Lord. (laughs) He's leader of all. He's the one we answer to, and he's the one who defends us. He's the one who's behind us and for us. So the best thing that we can do is live ready and be ready by being weak in Jesus and staying weak in Jesus. I told you earlier this sermon is not about cigarettes, but I'm gonna talk about them one more time. The cigarette might be the deadliest artifact in human history so far, but our root problem is not cigarettes. It's not any other artifact of the past or any artifact that will prove to be deadly or more deadly in the future. Our root problem is sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin is anything that misses the mark according to God. So this message isn't about smokers. It's about all of us because all of us have sinned. And what we deserve is from our sin, what we earn is death, spiritual death. And too many people, including myself, including Christians, spend too much of our lives thinking, sin is not that bad. The warning of the gospel is good. It's not that important. It is that important. It's more important than I can communicate to you. It's a matter of life and death. And this warning applies to everyone. Believer, follower of Jesus, non-believer. To the non-believer, the gospel warning says, you're spiritually dead and you will stay that way unless you repent, unless you turn from this way of life and turn to this new way of life, Jesus as your king. And trusting him, repent and believe. And to the believer, the gospel says, you were dead. And you don't deserve to be alive, but you've been given a new life in Christ. Enjoy it. Live it. And the way you do that is repent and believe. Keep repenting and keep believing. So we're about to do something we do every week, but we're going to do it in a way that we've not done it before as a church. Uh, and so I will say, this the tone of this passage was a warning. And so... Not every week is this intense. Uh, <laughs> or it's not, I guess, intense in this way, in, 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 the, in the way that a warning is intense. But what we do every week is we have a time of responding to God's word. Uh, what we're gonna do this week that we have not done before in prior weeks is we're gonna have an altar call during this last song. And all that that means is if you believe that God is moving you to come down to the front for any reason. Uh, the, it's an open invitation. You can kneel here at the stage. Um, you can sit in one of these empty front row pews. Uh, but the reason we're doing, and, and worship, wor- what we're gonna do is worship. And worship can happen there or here. So it's not like, oh, in order to worship, we all have to come up front now. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. We're just making this available because occasionally it's helpful to to respond to what God is doing internally with external movement by actually moving your feet um, and and coming forward. So with that said, I want to have a a coaching moment with us all real quick. Don't let who comes down or how many come down be of any importance to you. I'm not going to be offended or like, personally affected if nobody comes down. And this this whole thing could be a distraction to you in your worship. So this is the kind of fair warning. (laughs) Could be a distraction. You pick what you focus on though. So if you find yourself thinking, oh, I wonder what they did. (laughs) Or are they crying? I wonder why they're crying. (laughs) You're probably more focused on that person than God. And so here's what helps me. Because I've Struggled with staying focused in worship for most of my life. Here's what helps me. Watch, I'll show you. Did you see that? I close my eyes, I keep them closed because then I can shut out some of my distractions and I can choose my focus. My focus needs to be on Christ, and we can all choose our focus. So, with that said, if you sense God is calling you to come down and confess sin, just tell him about it. He already knows, but he wants you to tell him. Then you're welcome to. And I'd encourage you to repent. Tell him no longer, God, this me walking down here is a sign that I no longer want these chains on me. <laughs> I believe that you can help me take them off and only you can lead me in that process of taking them off. So, so do that. And maybe it's just as simple as like you don't like being weak in Jesus. You don't like feeling weak. You don't like appearing weak in front of other people. Here's a great opportunity to repent by just doing something that for most of us will make us feel weak. You come down in front where everybody can see you unless they're closing their eyes. I mean, it's, it's a feeling of weakness. But if that quote from Brainerd resonates with you, God Let me make a difference that's utterly disproportionate to who I am. What better way than to just come down and say to God, all I am is a broken guy, a broken gal walking up to the front, seeking you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, and you realize today that you absolutely need to, that you need to heed this warning, and you need to live the good life that only is found in Jesus, then come to the front and just talk to God about that. And talk to someone else after the service, because like we said earlier, we're, we're designed to live in community. We need each other. So talk to someone. You can even pull them aside and say, hey, can I talk to you in private? Because other, otherwise sometimes people, you know, will interrupt your conversation. Find a room, you know, go out to your car or Go outside, just find a private place. You can go downstairs. There's lots of unused rooms. Um, But if you need to talk to someone, find someone and talk to them. So band, you guys can come on up. Uh, They're gonna sing a song that says, oh, come to the altar. And technically, we don't have an altar to come to. But I want you to know what this song is saying is... Come to the altar because altar is where sacrifices happen. That's what Jesus is inviting us to come to. A place of weakness, a place of death, a place where sacrifice happens. But he's not doing it because he's a masochist who wants you to feel pain, not at all. He wants you to be healed. And you can only experience that healing on the other side of the pain. You can only experience God's power on the other side of your weakness. So he's inviting you to come to the place of sacrifice, the place of self-sacrifice, so that you can have something better, so that you can have new life in the resurrected Christ. So all that said, whether you come to the front or not, use this time to respond uh, to God's word Use this time to set yourself aside uh, to God and come to the place of worship. Come to the place where you are a living sacrifice.